All right, well, we're there in uh, 2 Samuel chapter number 4. And if you remember last week, we looked at in chapter number 3 that Joab, uh, which was David's general, remember David is the king of Judah, his general murdered Abner, who's Ishbosheth's general. Ishbosheth is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they're fighting each other. And in this chapter, we kind of see the aftermath of Abner's death. And uh, it's a short chapter, it's only 12 verses. And I uh, basically have three statements uh, that I'd like to make about this chapter, three things we can learn from this chapter. I'd like you to write them down if you are able to. If you don't have a child on your lap, I think writing down statements, maybe there in the margin of your Bible, is good for you to be able to remember what we're learning together. If you look there in 2 Samuel chapter 4, notice verse 1, the Bible says this, and when Saul's Son, that's Ishbosheth, the king, heard that Abner was dead in Hebron. His hands were feeble. Notice his reaction when Abner dies. His hands were feeble, and I want you to notice this reaction. All the Israelites were troubled. And if you've been with us and you've been studying the book of 2 Samuel, you know this, that Abner, even though he is uh, under Ishbosheth, Abner is really the leader. He's kind of uh, propping up Ishbosheth, and he's kind of helping Ishbosheth for his own purposes and uh, for his own agenda. And when Abner dies, the Bible tells us that Ishbosheth, his hands were feeble. He met, he felt weak. He felt, uh, you know, what am I going to do now that Abner is gone? And not only him, but all the Israelites were troubled. Everybody started thinking, well, what are we going to do now? that Abner's dead, and what are we going to do now that Abner's not around? And I'd like you to keep your finger there in 2 Samuel chapter 4, and go with me to the book of Psalms real quickly. You're there in 2 Samuel. You're going to go past First and Second Samuel, First and Second uh, Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalm. Psalm 118. Psalm 118. And uh, the first statement I'd like you to write down tonight, the first thing we can learn from this passage, you say, what was the problem there with Ishbosheth and the children of Israel? Here's their, here was the problem. Their confidence was in Abner. Basically, Abner was it. Abner was the man. They're, they're, they were trusting in Abner. As long as Abner was alive, as long as Abner was helping, as long as Abner was leading, then everything was fine. And the first thing we can learn from this passage is this. And I'd like you to look there at Psalm 118. Look down at verse number 8. Psalm 118 and verse number 8, the Bible says this. It is better to trust, notice what the Bible says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Now keep your finger right there. Uh, well, actually, you know, stay there for a second. I, I, I want to show you something else in there. But here's what I want you to understand. And here's the first statement I'd like to make tonight. We should not put our trust in men. We need to be careful about not putting our trust in men. And here's why. Because men will fail you. Eventually, they will fail you. They will die. Maybe not physically, but spiritually or in your relationship, they will not be there anymore. And as long as your confidence is in a person, as long as your confidence is in a man, as long as your movement or your family or your business or your church or whatever it is, is fine as long as so-and-so's around, then then you are on very uh, shaky ground because so-and-so, if he's a man, will eventually fail you, will eventually 
quit, will eventually leave, will eventually die, and we ought, be, we ought to be careful not to put our trust in men because men will fail you. That's why Psalm 118 says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. Now let me give you some examples as to how, because here's what you need to understand. We have the tendency of trusting men. We have the tendency of looking at individuals and looking at people and putting our confidence in them, putting our confidence in men, putting our con- and when I say men, I'm talking about mankind, putting our confidence in women, putting our confidence in, in people a- instead of God, because here's the difference between people and God is we see people, we don't see God. The Bible says we serve the invisible God, and we don't see God, and it's easy for us to not walk in faith and put our confidence in men. Let me give you the first example the Bible gives us about people putting their confidence in men. You're there in Psalm 118. Look at verse 8 again. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put put confidence in man. Look down at verse number 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Do you see that? Now, what's a prince? What's the reference there? It's talking about a government leader. It's talking about a politician. Today you have people and they put all their trust in politicians. And you know, we're right, now, right now we're in a political campaign and you got all these people running for president. And, and I'm, not, you know, I'm not saying if the right politician came around that it's wrong to support them or it's wrong to, 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 to vote for them or whatever. But listen to me, don't become one of these Christians that gets all wrapped up in politics and gets all wrapped up in, you know, well, we got to support this guy and we got to support this movement and we got to support these people. Hey, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in a man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in a prince or a prince. Or, or princes or politicians or, you know, we say, well, this guy is going to solve all our problems. There's only one man that's going to solve our problem. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no, you know, it t- when you start thinking like, well, we can just get this guy in the White House. If we can get this guy to be the governor. If we can get this guy elected. You're putting your confidence in the wrong place. And look, man cannot bring security. Man cannot bring, men are men. You say, well, I really like so-and-so. He will fail you. She will fail you. Eventually, they will mess up. You're there in Psalm 118. Go back to Psalm 20. Psalm 20. Look at verse 7. Today, you got these politicians who say, we'll keep you safe. We'll bring prosperity. We'll, you know, we're going to build up the military. We're going to look at I, I hope they do bring prosperity. I hope they do bring, uh, keep us safe. I hope they do some of the things that they've said they're going to do. And I hope they don't do some of the things that they said they're going to do. But notice what Psalm 20 and verse number 7 says. Psalm 20 and verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of our Lord our God, of the Lord our God. Look, what are you trusting in today? You're trusting in the the United States military? I'm not trusting the United States military. I'm not trusting any politician. I'm not trusting any program. I'm trusting the Lord. The Bible says that safety is of the Lord. And we need to be careful not to be these, you know, Ishbosheths. As soon as Abner dies, our hands are feeble. And we say, what are we going to do now? Look, it doesn't matter, you know, whenever this election is in November, it doesn't matter that next day after the election, if we wake up, it doesn't matter who's president or who's in charge, we're going to do the same thing we've been doing this whole time, which is preaching the gospel, which is living for God, which is getting people saved and baptized and discipled. Why? Because our confidence is not in men. Our confidence is in God. That's where it ought to be. That's where it should be. We see here that they had their confidence in men. Today, men want to put their confidence in a politician. Go to the book of 1 Corinthians. Let me give you another example. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. And when you get to 1 Corinthians, keep your finger there or a bulletin or a ribbon or something there. Because uh, we're going to leave there and we're going to come back to it. And please understand what I'm saying. 
If the right politician comes along, hey, vote for them. If the right guy comes along, support them. I'm not saying that's wrong. Here's what I'm saying. Today you've got Christians and you've got ministries and you've got churches and pastors where they're, they're, the balance is off. You know, every sermon's a political sermon. Everything's about, you know, politics and what's going on. Look, I could care less what's going on in politics. What we need to worry about is the Great Commission and getting people saved and taking the right stand and doing the things that God has called us to do. And God did not call us to run a political campaign. God called us to win people with the gospel of Christ and to take the stand of biblical Christianity in an in a unbelieving and dark world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But here, I want to give you some examples. Some people will put their, 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 their trust in men like a politician. Other people will put their trust in men like a pastor. Look, we need to be careful not to be overly trusting of spiritual leaders. I'm a pastor telling you, you need to be careful not to get overly consumed with a man or a pastor or, or a, an individual. And, and, and look, I'm not saying you ought not follow spiritual leadership. You ought to follow spiritual leadership. Are you there in 1 Corinthians? Uh, look at chapter 4 and verse 16. I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul said. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. We should follow spiritual leadership in our lives. I'm not saying not to. I think we should. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Wherefore, I beseech you, brethren. Notice what Paul said. He was the spiritual leader for, that, for them right there. He said, Be ye followers of me. He was saying, Go ahead and follow me. I think we ought to follow spiritual leadership. Uh, you're there in 1 Corinthians 4. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. Hebrews 13.7, while you're turning there, says this, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable, not for me, for you. Look, we ought to obey. We ought to submit to those that have the spiritual rule and the spiritual authority over us. And I'm not saying, you know, don't follow spiritual leader, leaders. Look at there. Are you there in 1 Corinthians 11? Look at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Paul says it again. Be ye followers of me. That's Paul speaking. He says, be ye followers of me. But listen to me. Here's the key. We should follow spiritual leaders as they follow Christ. Be followers of me, notice what he says, even as I also am of Christ. And the problem you have today is you've got a whole lot of people that make a cult leader out of their pastor, and their pastor starts doing, you know, uh, embezzling money and doing things they ought not be doing, and they're just like, oh, no, 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 we're going to keep following him. No, no, you follow the leader as he's following Christ. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. You're there in 1 Corinthians 11? Go to Philippians. Uh, you're going to go past 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Past 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Notice Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, look at verse 17. Brethren, Philippians 3, 17. Brethren, be ye followers of me. That's Paul speaking. And mark them which walk so as ye have us. Notice what he says. For an example, you are to follow their leadership. You ought to follow their example. Here's what that means. Pastor shows up for soul winning on Saturday, you ought to show up for soul winning on Saturday. Pastor shows up for church on Sunday morning, you ought to show up for church on Sunday morning. He shows up for church on Sunday night, he shows up for church on Wednesday night, he shows up for a work day. Hey, whatever the spiritual leadership's doing, they're not doing it because they're the leader. They're doing it because they're the example for you to follow. They're the example that God gave you for you to pattern your life along them. You ought to be able to look at the leader and say, whatever he's doing, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm not saying not to follow spiritual leaders, but here's what I'm saying. When spiritual leaders fail you, and they will, you continue to follow God. You continue, And you got people today, you got so many, you know, I, I could give you a list. I mean, 
I, I probably know 100. I mean, I probably know over 100 people who as soon as their pastor failed, they quit. And it's like you talk to people and, you know, it's, you, 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 you find someone you used to know in church or whatever, and, you know, they're, they're out on a Friday night getting drunk or something. And you're like, what are you, you know, what are you doing with your life? Why, why are you drinking? Why, you know, why are you uh, uh, living your life like this? And they're like, well, you know, the pastor, he's was, you know, the church I was going to, he messed up and he was lying about things. And, and it's like, okay, that, that's fine. I get that. But why are you out here? Well, you know, the treasurer at the church, you know, he was embezzling money. Okay, I, I, I understand. That's terrible. But wh- why are you out here? Well, you know, that guy that got me saved and started coming to church, him and his wife ended up splitting up because of an adult. Okay, well, that's sad, but why are you out here? Look, we need to get to this place. Look, if Pastor Jimenez is not your pastor next week, I hope you'll still serve God. I hope this church won't just fold over. I hope you're not just here because of me or because of man, but you say, I will follow a man as he follows God, but if the man quits following God, hey, you follow God. But see, the problem is we put our confidence politicians. We put our confidence in pastors. We put our confidence in... And here's the problem is when Abner's gone, your hands are feeble. That's a problem. When Abner's gone and everyone's saying, well, what are we going to do now? That's a problem. You're there in Philippians 3. Look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. Let me give you another example. We've been talking on Sunday mornings a lot about work salvation. And here's, here's what you need to understand. Those who are trusting their works to save them are putting their confidence in a man. Who's the man? Themselves. They are trusting themselves and the things that they do. Notice what Paul said in Philippians 3, look at verse 4. Though I might also, notice what he says, have confidence in the flesh. Whose flesh? He's talking about his own flesh. He said, I have confidence in, in the flesh. He's talking about himself. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He says, if anybody out there thinks that they've got something to trust in themselves, he said, I have a better list than they do. And then he goes and gives his list. Look at verse 5. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. We won't read all that, but look down to verse number 9. Notice what he says. But be found in him. He said, I'd rather be found in him. Notice what he says. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Today you've got people and they say, well, I think you've got to live a good life to go to heaven. I think you've got to keep the commandments. I think you need to repent of your sins. I think you need to get baptized. Hey, those people are putting their confidence in a man. It just happens to be that man is themselves. And they're in for trouble. We should not put our confidence in people. People will fail you. I will fail you. Some of you were mad at me before I even walked in the building because pastor didn't get back to my text message. It's like, I can't, you know. But here's the thing. Sometimes I'm not going to get back to you. Sometimes, you know, there may come a time I don't visit you at the hospital. I'm sorry. I'm not God. I'm not omnipresent. But you know what? When men fail you, God never fails you. And I want you to notice something. Go go back to 2, 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4, and, and I do my best to call you back or return your phone. It might be a week later, but I do my best, you know, to do it. 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 4, look at verse number 2. And Saul's sons had two men that were captains of his bands. So these are guys that had some sort of leadership position there. The name of the one was Beena, and the name of the other, Recap. The sons of Rimon, a Berothite of the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth also was reckoned to Benjamin. 
And the Berothites fled to Gataim and were sojourners there until this day. Just kind of giving you history about their background. These guys are Benjamites, but they're not living in uh, Benjamin there with the tribe. Look at verse 4. And Jonathan saw son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, the reason that Mephibosheth is mentioned at this point is because Ishbosheth, who's Saul's uh, son, who's on the throne, is going to die in this chapter. He's, he's dying. And they're just mentioning to us that there's another uh, relative of Saul named uh, uh, Mephibosheth. And he's going to play a role later on in the book. And we'll talk more about him. We're not going to talk about him tonight. We'll do an entire sermon on the life of Mephibosheth later on. Look at verse 5. And the sons of Rimon, the Berothite, Rechab, and Baena, went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth. Now, I want you to notice this. To the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. Okay? Now, I want you to understand this. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings if this is you. But people who, unless you're in Mexico and the culture is, you know, to take a siesta in the middle of the day, people who lay in their bed at noon, generally they're depressed and discouraged is what I found. And I've done a lot of counseling as a pastor over the last five years. And here's what's interesting. Here's what I've learned. Uh, If you want to know what I've learned about counseling people is that our psychiatrists and therapy in America today have no clue what they're talking about. They've got it completely backwards. And here's why. He's lying in a bed in the middle of the day because he's depressed and discouraged that he's not the leader he should be. But he's not the leader he should be because he's lying in bed in the middle of the day. You know, the reason that Abner was the the guy that everybody was looking at as leader is because Abner was a go-getter. Abner was the one out there doing it. Abner was the one out there working. And here's what I felt. People will say like, oh, I'm really depressed. And I'm not trying to pick on anybody. If this is you, I'm not, I'm not picking on you. I, I don't even know it. But people will say like, oh, I'm really depressed because my finances are a mess. And then here's what psychiatry tells you. And here's what our modern day therapy tells you. They say, let's give you these pills that will make you feel better so that that way you can get your finances, you know, your life strained out. But look, that's not how it works. You're depressed about your finances. If you get your finances in order, you'll feel better. People say, I'm depressed about my weight. If you get your weight under control, you'll feel better. People say, I'm depressed about my relationship. If you get your relationships under control, you'll feel better. Here's what you need to understand. Actions proceed the feeling. You do right, then you feel right. But today, here's what American you know, psychology tells you is, we'll give you pills to make you feel right. We're not going to strain out anything in your life. I mean, you're still going to be a mess. You're still going to be in trouble. You're still going to have all these problems, but we'll just make you feel right. No, no, no. You've got to get to the root of the problem. You know, the reason is, Shed, you're depressed, you're discouraged, you're laying in bed in the middle of the day is because you're not the leader you should be. Get off the bed and get to work and become the leader you should. Become the man that you should be. Don't be the guy who's afraid because Abner say, I'm going to become Abner. But because he doesn't, he feels bad and he's laying in bed, but that's the reason he's not the man he should be. And, you know, some of you are discouraged about certain things instead of complaining and whining. I'm not upset with you. I'm not angry with you. I'm just telling you. You come to my office. You say, I need to count. Here's what I'm going to say. What are you upset about? Well, I'm upset about X, Y, and Z. Well, let's get a plan to fix X, Y, and Z. But here's what I've noticed. Most people don't want to fix X, Y, and Z. They just want to complain about it. They just want a drug to feel better. They don't want to actually deal with the issues. They don't actually want to deal with the problems. And that's the reason you've got issues. Go to the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You say, are you a doctor? I'm a pastor. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And I'm not giving any of you medical advice. 
for the record. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You need to be careful about not putting your trust in men. Notice what Jesus said. John chapter 2 and verse 23. John chapter 2 and verse 23. Because here's the problem with men. They will fail you and you'll be discouraged about it. They will fail you and you'll be depressed about it. They will fail you and you'll be upset about it. Notice what, what, Jesus, what the Bible says about Jesus. John chapter 2 verse 23. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name. When they saw the miracles, which he did, Jesus just had a great Sunday. You know, he just had a great service. A lot of people got saved. A lot of people saw his miracles. Everybody's excited. But notice what the Bible says in verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He knew what was in man, notice, and he needed not that any should testify of men. He didn't need someone pumping him up to keep him going. Jesus did not commit himself to men. He committed himself to God because when you get to John chapter 6, there's a big church split, and when the men are God, he's still serving God. Because he was doing it for God. He wasn't doing it for men or the praise of men or the commitment of men. And let me tell you something. Especially those, those of you guys who want to be pastors someday, let me explain something to you. The hardest lesson I had to learn in ministry is to not get excited when people start coming to our church. People would call me and say, we're going to come to your church. Or people want to meet with me. People want to send me emails. People want to send me letters about they're coming to our church. And here's what I figured out. Just do, Because here's the thing. Four or five or six different times, some family starts coming here, or some guy starts coming here, or some lady starts coming here, and they sound like they're great. They sound like they're, and I get all excited. I'm like, man, these people are going to help us. These people are going to be faithful. These people are going to be so. And then it's like, you're a Sunday morning only? What? You don't go soul winning? You don't tithe? And it's just, you know, you just get discouraged because you get all this excitement. You think all these, because here's what I've noticed people sound better on the phone than they do in real life. And they just look better on paper than they really are. When you actually start charting the church attendance, you're like, oh, wow, they're not really that faithful. And I just have to realize, I just, you know, people come here, I just, I don't get that excited about it. You know why? Because people come and go. And if they stick around and they're faithful, praise God for it. And if they're not, I just try not to attack, I just try not to commit myself to them. Because here's the thing, I'll be here whether they are here or not a year from now. And you need to learn that lesson. And some of you that are in this church and you're in a leadership position, you need to learn that lesson. You know, it's great when we've got the 170 and 180 on Sunday morning. we got the 200 on Sunday morning. Hey, rejoice, but don't get too excited about it. Because the days are coming that we'll have 150 and 140. And we're not doing it for a crowd. We're not doing it for men. And by the way, while, while I'm talking about it, those of you that are in leadership position... You know, let me give you another example where people will fail you. And this is, a, this is what I've learned in ministry. It's not that men, it's not that they might fail you. It's they will fail you. It's just a matter of time. They, everyone will fail you. I will fail you. But let me say this. If you are a song leader, you lead discipleship, you're an usher, you're a personal worker, you're a man or a woman that has taken a leadership position in Verity Baptist Church, here's where I've noticed people will fail you, is you ask them to take a leadership position because they're faithful, and then as soon as they have the title, they quit being faithful. And it's just like, 
Man, the reason I ask you to do that is because you come to church Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and soul winning. Now you're not going so. And let me say this. You guys that are in leadership position, you need to step up. Because I'm getting sick and tired of having to run around like your mom and say, you know, you committed to this. You ought to have enough character to say, if I commit to something, I'm going to do it. And if I'm not going to do it, then I'm going to have enough integrity to step down and say, you know what, Pastor? I used to be faithful, but I'm backslidden now, so I'm going to bow out. I mean, you should have enough integrity to say, I used to be faithful when you asked me to teach the class. I used to be faithful when you asked me to be a personal worker. I used to be faithful when you asked me to be an usher. But now I'm backslidden. Now I've got other things that are more important. I'm gonna, I used to be faithful when you asked me to leave the music. But now I've got other things that are more important to me. I'm going to bow out. I shouldn't have to come to you and say, what's going on? Why haven't you been soul winning in six weeks? You're making us look stupid. When I get up here and preach about soul winning every week, and then people point at, well, so-and-so, he's a leader, and I haven't seen him. Look, either get right or get out. Get done. Say, I have, people don't like this type of preaching. It's the type of preaching we need. Amen. The most important thing we do is serve God around here. The most important thing we do is serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and we ought not do it just flaky. We ought not do it just, you know, well, whatever, when I got time. That's not the God I'm serving. And I'm not doing it for men, and I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. I preach like this when we had five people coming, and I'll preach like this when we've got 150 people, 300, 400. I expect you to be faithful if that's what you said you were going to do. And by the way, let me say this. You don't have to be that faithful to come to our church, but you want to lead, you better be faithful. You want to lead, you need to show up on a Wednesday night. You want to lead, you need to show up on a Sunday night. You want to lead, you need to show up for soul winning. If I'm going to pay you, you need to be faithful. If I'm going to put you in a position where people are going to look at you and expect you to meet a certain criteria, then meet that criteria. And don't make me, you know, people say, well, Pastor Emanis, he's so mean, he walked up to me and asked me to stop. Why do I have to be the mean one when you're the one that doesn't do what you said you're going to do? Why do I have to be the mean one when you're the one that won't keep your commitment and you won't say what you, and you, if you don't have the character to do it, then step out, bow out. It's okay. I'll, I'll still love you. I might not return your text message, but I don't return anybody's text message. Don't put your confidence in men. We should not put our trust in men. Men will fail you. Men will fail you. Men will make you look bad. Men will make you uh, get frustrated. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. What's the first thing we learned from this chapter? Number one, when you put, we should not put our trust in God. That did not come out right. We should not put our trust in men. Only in God. See, men will fail you. <laughs> there you go. Men will say the wrong thing. 2 Samuel chapter 4, look at verse 6. And they came hither into the midst of the house, as though they would have fetched wheat, and they smote him. Some of you are like, Pastor, are you mad? At, I'm mad at like five of you right now, okay? So don't think I'm just mad at one person. And they came hither into the midst of the house, as though they would have fetched wheat, and they smote him. That's Ishbosheth, under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Baena, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he, that's Ishbosheth, lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and got them away through the plain all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life, and the Lord, notice, the Lord hath avenged my Lord the king this day. I want to... I want to ask these guys, really? You know what I found? It's funny. People will say, people will just, they, they, they do what they want to do, and then they'll say, it was God's will. The Lord has avenged my king. It's like, no, no, you guys had a bright idea to go do something because you thought you were going to get a reward out of it. Don't put God's name in this. 
Don't get that divorce and say, well, I think that's what God wanted. No, no, no. God tells us what he wants in the word of God. Here's a question I have for these two. Where does God tell you that you're supposed to go in the middle of night like a coward when a man, you know, I guess not in the middle of night, in the middle of the day, but when the guy's asleep like a coward when he can't defend himself and then just kill him in his sleep? Where does God say that's okay? What does God say? That's the way. You know, and if God puts David in leadership, then God's going to take care of it. But these guys, they come out and they say, this was the Lord's will. The Lord hath avenged my Lord, the king this day of Saul and of his seed. What's the second lesson we can learn from this chapter? And here's what I want you to understand. This is what these guys were saying. They were saying, we did something bad. We snuck in. We lied and we snuck in while he was asleep and we stabbed him in the fifth rib, to under the fifth rib, till he bled to death. But, David, now you get to be the king. And here's what they're saying. We did something bad, but something good's going to come out of it. And here's what I want you to understand. The second lesson we can learn from this chapter is this. It's never right to do wrong to do right. Amen. It's never right to do wrong to do right. And because here you got these guys saying, we did something wrong. But we're furthering the kingdom of David. We're propelling the kingdom of David. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I don't know if I told you to keep your place in 1 Corinthians, but I meant to. Uh, so go, go to 1 Corinthians. Let me give you a New Testament example of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Today people say, we're doing, we're doing the wrong thing, but we're, they, they were saying we're furthering the kingdom of David. Now remember, David is a picture of Christ. And today you have people saying, sure, we're doing the wrong thing, but you know what? We're furthering the kingdom of Christ. We're doing it for the kingdom of David. We're doing it for the kingdom of Christ. So let me show you the, ver- the, the passage that liberals love to go to. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse 20. They say, they'll take this, verse, uh, this passage out of context. They'll say, unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Notice verse 23. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. And, he, and today you've got liberals saying, well, you know what? We're going to bring in the rock music of this world. We're going to bring in the rap music of this world. We're going to dim the lights and make this place look like a rock concert. We're just going to not preach things that are not popular. We're going to just cut out certain parts of Scripture. We're not going to go to them because they're offensive, because people don't like them. We're just going to water down the message, and we're going to water down the, the standards. But we're doing it to reach more people. We're doing it that we might save some. We're doing it for the gospel's sake. But listen to me. It's always wrong. It's always wrong to do right. Good night. I'm messing that up. Never do right. Good night. It's never right to do wrong to do right. There you go. Man, we'll fail you. And here's the thing. It is better to fail than to succeed doing wrong. Because people say, like, man, if you just cut, you know, if you just change the music a little bit, if you just cut out the preaching just a little bit, if you just cut out certain things, not everything, just certain things, you could reach more people. But here's the thing. It's better to fail doing right. It's better just, you say, well, you're going to pastor a small church your whole life. Which, look, our church is already larger than the average church in America. Average church in America has 100 people in it. There are mega churches with 5,000 people in it, but that's not normal. Those are the exceptions. 
But even so, you say, well, you'll never pass to a church of a thousand. You'll, and and I, I doubt, I mean, if we stay here for 40 years, I'm sure we will eventually one day pass to a church of 500 people, a thousand people. I don't see why not. But, but here's the thing. Even if we don't, that's not the goal. The goal is to serve God. The goal is to do right. And it's wrong to use the world's music. It's wrong to water down the message. It's wrong to lower the standards. It's wrong to just skip certain subjects and skip certain things and not offend people to reach more people. And that's not even what this passage is talking about. Because notice there, you're in 1 Corinthians 9, look at verse 21. To them that are without the law, notice what he says, as without the law. But notice what he says in parentheses, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. Amen. Here's what he's saying. We, we are never under, we are never not without law to God. We should always follow the laws of God. Because here's what you need to understand. The laws of a society don't always match up with the laws of God. And sometimes we can look the other way to get someone saved with the laws of, of man, but we should never look the other way when it comes to the laws of God. You say, give me an example. Here's an example. You walk up to somebody on Saturday soul winning and they're on their, on their you know, porch smoking pot. Say, what do you do? Do you call the cops? No. You turn them in? No. Do you ask them for their medical marijuana card so you can make sure they're not? No, we don't care about that. Just give them the gospel. But look, we're not going to break the laws of God in order to reach that person. We're not going to go against what God said and, and violate his laws and, and, and then say, well, you know, we're just doing it to reach more people. It's never right to do wrong to do right. I've had people say to me, well, Pastor, you know, here's the thing. I, I'm not going to come to church on Sunday night. I'm not going to come to church on Wednesday night. I'm going to keep church on Sunday morning, but here's why I'm doing it, because I'm going to go preach the gospel. No, that's not right. You come to church and you make time some other time during the week to give the gospel to people. It's not right to do wrong to do right. We ought to do right. Lee Roberts said, I think it was Lee Roberts who said, do right till the stars fall, do right. And it, we need to just follow God. And if it means that we'll fail, then we fail doing right. If it means that we fail, then we'll fail doing what God told us to do. So the second thing we can learn from this chapter is it's never right to do wrong to do right. It's better to fail than to succeed doing the wrong thing. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Let me give you the third one quickly. 2 Samuel chapter 4, look at verse 8. 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 8. And they that brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. I want you to notice this phrase, thine enemy. They said, We brought the head of your enemy, thine enemy, which sought thy life. And the Lord hath avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul. And obviously, and by the way, let me say this because somebody's going to ask me this question. I'm not advocating smoking pot, okay? I think it's wrong to smoke pot. I'm just saying that's not a law we care about, all right? Look at verse 9. And David answered Rechab and Baena, his brother, the son of Ramon, the Berothite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. Because some of you are like, well, pastor said, you know, and I'm just like, good night. Verse 10. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. He said, look, somebody already brought me news about Saul, thinking I was getting a reward, and I put him to death. Notice verse 11. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed? Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? 
And David commanded his young men, and they slew them, and cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. Now, go to the book of Psalms. You were just there not too long ago. You're going to go past 2 Samuel, 1 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. Go to Psalm 139, and here's what I want you to understand. In Matthew, Jesus said this. He says, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. And God told us that we are to love our enemies and that we are to love those who love us. And we see David exemplifying that over and over and over again in his life. He loved Saul and would not avenge himself when he had the opportunity. He loved Ishbosheth. Even though he was fighting against him, he said, they were saying, I want to win in a fair fight. I want us to meet when we're both awake, you know, and fight, not you do it, you know, in a deceitful way. But here's what I want you to see in Psalm 139. Because Psalm 139, starting at verse 21, was penned by David. Now, we know it's penned by God. God was the one who gave it to David, and it's under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But David said in Psalm 139 and verse 21, Do not I hate them? Notice what he says. O Lord, that hate thee. And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. Remember the word perfect means complete, whole, mature. He says, look, I have a perfect hatred for them. I count them mine enemies. And then, and then he makes, you know, Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24 are um, verses that are often quoted about these great verses. But I want you to notice the context in which he said them. He just got done saying, do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. He just got done saying, I hate them which, uh, with perfect hatred. And then he makes these great, you know, verses, uh, statements in the Bible, verse 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He says, I hate Hate them with a perfect hatred. And then he says, God, tell me if I'm doing something wrong. Which he's not. There's many verses in the Bible. And I, I'm not going to take time to, to develop it because there's so many. But, but let me show you one. Go to Ecclesiastes. You're there in Psalms. You're going to go past Proverbs into Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a whole little list here of things. But I just want you to look at verse number 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 8. The Bible says, a time to love, he just got done telling us there's a time for everything, there's a season for everything, and he's telling us all these different things, and in verse 8 he says, there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Today, you've got Christians that'll say, like, you're never supposed to hate anybody. Well, look, Ecclesiastes 3.8 says there's a time for love and there's a time for hate. Psalm 139 says, I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. So here's the question I have for you. How do you reconcile these thoughts that David in Psalm 139 is saying, there are some people that I hate, and I'm right about it. In fact, search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me and know my ways and see if there be any wicked way in me. How do we reconcile that to the statements that Jesus made when he says that we are to love our enemies? We are to bless them that curse us and do good to them that hate us. How do we reconcile those two thoughts? And the answer is found in Psalm 411. Uh, I'm, for, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 411. Go back there real quick. Let me just show this to you. Because I want you to see what David understood. Because David said, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. 
And in uh, 2 Samuel 4, 11, the Bible says this. This is what David said. He said, how much more when wicked men have slain, notice what he says, a righteous person. Now, what's a righteous person? Well, there's a couple of ways you can go with that. A righteous person is just meaning a person who hasn't done anything wrong. And, but, but even more than that, a righteous person is someone who's a believer, who's saved. And I think Ishbosheth was probably saved. There's no reason to think that he wasn't. I think Saul was saved, and I think Jonathan was saved, and I'm sure Ishbosheth was saved. And, but even if he wasn't, he hadn't done anything wrong. He's just, you know, fighting on the wrong side of a political movement. And, and yes, it was God. God wanted David to be the king, but it's, he's not a wicked man. It's not like Ishbosheth hates God. He's just David's enemy. And here's what I want you to understand when you have an enemy, and when I have an enemy, we are to love our enemies. Some of you think I'm your enemy. I'm not your enemy, but that's okay. As a leader, I realize people just, people, here's what I realize. People don't respond to nice. They respond to mean. You know, I'd rather be feared than loved. This is what I've figured out as a pastor. I'd rather you just not cross me than, to, for, than to, for us to have dinner or whatever, you know. I have dinner with my wife. But here's the thing. People, you have an enemy and I have an enemy. I have a few enemies. And, and you've got enemies. You've got people that you say, that person doesn't like me or that, I don't like that person. Here's the thing. If that person's just a person, maybe they're even a righteous person. They, maybe they're even say, Maybe they go to the same church you go to. And they're, they're not a bad person. They don't hate God. They're not a reprobate. They just, for whatever reason, you and them clash. Then you know what? You are to love that person. You are to bless that person when they curse you. You are to do good to them when they despitefully use you. And that's what David did. Ishbosheth was his enemy and he loved Ishbosheth and he avenged Ishbosheth. Saul was his enemy and he loved Saul and he avenged Saul. But you know what? We're not supposed to love those who hate God. Do you understand that? There are people in this world, there are perverts and sodomites and transgender and a bunch of weirdos in this world who hate God and hate the things of God, and they don't maybe necessarily hate me, you know, unless they hear a sermon or something, but they don't necessarily hate you, but they hate God, and at that point, we're not supposed to love that person. We're supposed to hate that person. There's a time to hate. There's a time to fight. There's a time to say, do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. Look, if they hate God, then we are to count them our enemies. But if they just hate you, then you're to love that person. You understand that? If, if, If they have a problem with you, they have an issue with you, then you just love them, you pray for them. But if they hate God, if they got an agenda against God, then we are supposed to hate. Well, look, we're not supposed to love everybody. And, and, you know, this is one of the toughest things that's hard to get in the minds of people because people have been brainwashed to think like, well, God loves everybody. God loves everybody. Look, if God loves everybody, why does he send people to hell? Millions of people to hell every day. You say, well, I, God loves everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But you reject his son, you're going to hell. God doesn't love everybody. God will punish some people in hell who refuse to get saved and they want to trust in themselves for salvation. And, and God initially loves everyone, but there's a point that men cross a line. The Bible says, as it is appointed unto men, once to die, but after this, the judgment. And at that point, if you're not in Christ, you're not getting love from God. You're getting his wrath. God doesn't love everybody. And here's what's so stupid about that. You know, if you love anything, you're going to have to hate something. You can't say just, I love everyone. That, that makes no sense. Here's the thing, I love my children. 
So I hate the pedophile that wants to hurt my children. You know, and, and you say, well, no, you're, you're supposed to, am I, are we supposed to love pedophiles at a very Baptist church? And just bring them in and say, well, just, you know, go ahead. Here's a Sunday school class with a bunch of little kids, you know. Uh, we'll close the door and, you know, just don't do anything bad. Is that what we're supposed to do? Say, well, we, you know, we just got to bring in these sodomites. No, we don't. God doesn't love everyone. Look, someone doesn't like you. I don't like you. You love me, okay? You don't love me. I, you, I'll love you. But when they hate God, when they are perverts, when they are unnatural, when they are taking a stand against God, then we are supposed to hate them. And by the way, you're supposed to hate them whether you like it or not. There's a time for love and there's a time for hate. So, you know, the same David who looks at Ishbosheth and said, yeah, that was my enemy, but you know what? That was wrong. You killed him and you deserve to die. And by the way, the death penalty is in the Bible. And, and you say that, you know, Saul was my enemy, but I love Saul. He was a good man. He, we just had a beef. That same David would write Psalm 139 to say, do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. I hate them with a perfect hatred. Search me, O oh God. That's the same David. Because those are not opposing sides of, of one argument. They're two different arguments. And you need to just get used to that because we're living in a world that is more and more wicked every day. And we need to start identifying the enemies of God, not, the, not our enemies. Identify your enemies you can pray for. Identify your enemies you can write them a nice note. Identify the, your enemies so you can bring them a meal and you can be good to them and love them. Identify your enemies so you can avenge them when they're done wrong. Uh, identify your enemies so you can love them properly. But also identify the enemies of God so that we can fight against them and we can hate them. Amen. Like God said. So what do we learn from this passage? Number one, we should not put our trust in men. Men will fail. Look, I will fail you. Please know that. Number two, it's never right to do wrong to do right. It's never right to do wrong to do right. In fact, it's better to fail. It's better to fail doing right than to succeed doing wrong. And number three, we should love our enemies, but not God's enemies. We should love those who hate us, but not those who hate God. And we live in the society today where people say, and, and by, you know, we're going to get to the sodomites here in our series in Genesis soon. And look, you study the sodomites out in the Bible. There's not one good thing said about them. There's nothing in the Bible said that they're good people. You say, well, the the one I know, that's because you don't know them at 1 in the morning. That's because you don't know them at 2 in the morning. And if you do, you need to get out. You know, I mean, we don't want you here. There's nothing good said about them. They're they're not welcomed here. We don't want them here. We'll kick them out physically if we need to. In fact, we prefer it that way. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father.